Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman, and this must be episode 202. My thanks, as always, to Yesty Boys, La Pity Chocolat, and Tea Leaf Tea. This is a conversation with Matthew Bannister. You may know him from the band Sneaky Feelings. They were one of the great Dunedin bands in the 80s, and... Um, and in fact, they, they have got together again in recent years and put out uh, some, I guess you call them, uh, comeback reunion albums. There's another one in the works, I believe, for uh, 2020. Um, but he's been involved in a variety of musical projects since then. Most recently, um, he has been working under the umbrella term One Man Bannister, and he has put out two um, separate albums where he has interpreted albums by the Beatles. So the first one was called Evolver. That was his take on the album Revolver. And then he very recently has done Rubber Solo, obviously Rubber Soul. But what he does with these, and I love um, I love these albums, what he does with these is he basically rewrites these Beatles songs. So uh, creates completely different song settings for them. Uh, I, I, I think basically he's rewriting them in the style that he would have written them if he had first composed them, if that makes sense. Anyway, we we are a couple of Beatle nerds, so we do have a bit of a chat about the Beatles, but we talk about his life and various careers and hobbies that have um, that have formed who he is and what he does. Uh, he wrote a really great, 20 years ago, he wrote a really great memoir called Positively George Street. Um, it was, for a long time, the the very best book, I think, about the Dunedin Sound, and maybe it still is the very best book about the Dunedin Sound. It had some uh, polarised people, I think. Uh, there was uh, certainly uh, some energy and anger towards Chris Knox from him in the book, and we talked a bit about that and whether that was ever reconciled. Uh, it was my first time meeting Matthew. He was in town a couple of months ago to play a show behind the Rubber Solo album, and uh, so I met him at the gig, and we had already organised a chat. We've corresponded a few times. Um, it was really nice to meet him. It was nice to have this conversation. He's a, a thoughtful, interesting chap with, with a great story, and he's put some great songs out into the world, and now he's doing some very cool covers of some amazing songs by one of the best bands ever so I hope you enjoy this conversation this is me and Matthew Bannister I'm interested to talk to you about the, the Beatles thing and where that's happened over the last few years but should we should we get to that when we get to that should we, yeah. st- should we start at the start tell me about um, what was happening where you grew up you grew up in Scotland uh, yeah that's correct um, I was born in Aberdeen I lived in Glasgow until I was about 8 or 9 and then I lived in Dunblane. Yeah. Yeah, that Dunblane. Yeah. Although the serial killing, I mean, the, the mass murder had yet to happen. Yeah. Although I did actually, the, the gym where it happened, I, I that was the gym where I had my phys- PE lessons when I was a kid. Mm. I actually went back there in 2008 and they knocked it down, mm. unsurprisingly. Mm. And um, I, so I was take just, I went and took my kids back there just to see where I grew up yeah. and stuff. It's yeah. in Scotland, but um, it was kind of I was so you could say I'm Scottish, but, but the complicating factor is that my parents were English. Right. They were English people that were trying to get away from England, get away from their families, <laughs> and also they were kind of my father was a university lecturer, so you know university mm. people tend to move around a lot, you know. Yeah, to be yeah. Quite sort of metropolitan. Yeah. Cosmopolitan, whatever. So, even though I was in Scotland, I was my parents were English, so I was kind of a little. It's just a slightly sort of fish-out-of-water situation. Mm. <clears throat> of course, I grew up with a Scottish accent and everything, but at the same time, I was kind of dimly aware that I wasn't really Scottish. 
and then I saw us coming to New Zealand, you know, I guess I was, you know, also aware that I wasn't really a New Zealander. Although I'd say now I do regard myself as a, yeah, yeah, as you've, a kind of Kiwi now. Uh, but it took quite a long time. Yeah, it's an, an interesting kind of... And, and well, what was going on for you as a kid in, in Scotland and these two particular places where you grew up? What was what do you remember of it and what was happening for um, you? Well, I remember mainly that... Um, uh, what do I remember? Um, probably I sort of preferred Glasgow ultimately to uh, Dunblane. Yeah. Um, but that was partly because my, you know, p parents are having a few problems and they sort of came to the fore um, in the sort of latter part. And I think they moved to New Zealand partly as a, you know, an attempt to kind of right. a, I was, make, make a new start. I was going to ask how they <laughs> came to... New Zealand. Uh, well, actually, was it a teaching-related thing though? As yeah, well? well yeah, my yeah. father got a job at the University yeah. of Otago. Yeah, he was professor of botany. Yeah, at Otago um, for until he died, which was about ten years ago. Um, but I remember um, music immediately growing up was, you know, I, for instance, you know, I watched quite a lot of TV as a kid, but the main thing I can remember is always that I enjoyed the themes, the themes, the theme songs to the shows often more than I enjoyed the shows yeah, themselves. Yeah. <laughs> I can remember all these, all these theme tunes from being a kid and watching TV, but I can't remember anything about the programs. Right. And also I would, uh, I would listen to radio one quite a lot, which is, you know, the radio, st BBC radio station and just sort of wait for the decent songs to come up. Hmm. Those days, of course, you couldn't pick and choose. You had to just, live with whatever the broadcaster kind of threw at you mm. and then my parents weren't particularly interested in music but they had a couple of Beatles records and I kind of latched onto them and that sort of started my interest in um, uh, music in pop music and then that was kind of reinforced by listening to pop radio and you know this is probably about the period of like glam rock and Slade and The Sweet yeah. and all those kinds of bands and, and from that I started you know listening to kind of pop music more and more um, and also in Scotland there was a very kind of active culture around discos and dancing mm -hmm. it was kind of a major form of socialization yeah yeah you you the community you'd, event you yeah community events and also birthday parties they, they were, typically they would hire a DJ who's often a friend of yours at school yeah and you just dance with girls basically and it was all pretty innocent there was no yeah. there was no alcohol or anything yeah but <clears throat> you know and so the music was kind of a very important part of that and of course that was also the time that disco was starting as well mm. and so although i had kind of mixed feelings about disco initially <laughs> i did grow to like it i think yeah. i seem to remember the first thing that really grabbed me in, in disco was chic Oh yeah, yeah. And the Le Freak, because I think yeah. it's just the guitar lick, and I yeah, it's a fun. It's, a, it's basically a funk tune. Yeah, and when I heard that guitar playing, I sort of thought, "Wow, these guys have really got yeah. something." I think that yeah, it's funny that like for me, disco was one of the one of the genres that I couldn't really get purchase on as a kid, and I think it was thinking that it wasn't sophisticated when actually it. it, it the best of it very much is, but it's more sophisticated in terms of how the you know the instrumental is crafted. You know the the, ly yeah. the lyrics are there is often a bit of a placeholder. Yeah, um, 
and also I guess just growing up sort of it's like black you don't you initially don't identify with black music particularly yeah 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 but the thing was I was going to discos and dancing to the music and after a while if you dance to music enough you start liking it yes <laughs> and so it, almost by by continual ex- overexposure I ended up kind of starting to like disco music yeah um, or so at least some of it you know yeah. parts of it yeah and you know there are some great songs in there too stuff like you know Never Can Say Goodbye yeah, or yeah. Again or yeah. what, you know um, um, Young Hearts Run Free by Kathy yeah. Statton yeah, yeah there, are, there are some fantastic songs in there yeah absolutely. as well as some total trash but yeah you know. but every genre's got that yeah it's mm. it's funny how if you well I guess it makes sense but if you don't if you think you don't like something you only point out the bad examples and suggest that they're representative you know yeah but uh, and so tell me with the Beatles uh, has that been a lifelong commitment as a listener to you or do you or do you leave them alone for a bit or are they just always there well I mean I've listened to them so much in the past that I don't really feel the need to listen to them no 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 I know I feel the same way although because my son's getting really into them I'm revisiting them by association but what I mean is you you didn't dismiss them and and lose interest Because you can, because you can still be interested in something without listening to it actively, because you've you've already done the listening. Well, I remember as a kid, I went through sort of phases of liking different parts of the Beatles. Yeah. When I started off, I used to really like early rock and roll, mm. and so I liked when the Beatles did rock and roll. I liked it, mm. you know, rock and roll music, you know, Lizzy, that kind of the stuff. The covers and yeah, yeah. And then as I kind of got a bit older, I started liking the older stuff, and my friend gave me the the blue Beatles compilation. Oh yeah, yeah. The seventy was yeah. So, and I know for a while I was. Uh, I liked the later Beatles and I kind of ignored the earlier Beatles but then by the time I was about 18 or 19 I kind of realised that yeah I liked a lot yeah yeah. as there isn't really any phase of the Beatles that I don't like yeah yeah they didn't I mean they crammed so much into a short period that there's no real spectacular failure there you um, know, there's the odd song you might not like but every album has its merits basically yeah pretty much um yeah, the early stuff is fresh. I think the early stuff is quite underrated, actually, because maybe because, you know, people, rocks or rock fans find it easier to get into the later stuff because it's more obviously mm. rock music. Mm, mm. Whereas, you know, the earlier stuff perhaps just sounds a bit too, you know, tinny or ancient. Twee, yeah. Um, but actually, you know, in terms of, like, harmonic sophistication, etc., the early stuff is just as involving and yeah. musically complex as, as, the, as the later stuff. I played you know. with the Beatles two nights ago for the first time in a wee while and that was always a favourite album of mine to me that was a little bit easier to, to sink into for some reason than the first album and my son was not interested in it because mm. he likes basically rubber soul onwards yeah and that's, and that's, that's fair that's enough really, and that, that's that, common that's, yeah that's right and, that, and I guess maybe that really is the, ma- the true magic or whatever but um yeah, I was, I was just like, with the Beatles, is still a very, very good album. Like, to me, there's just a, a feel about it. It just comes in swinging. Yeah, I think there's a kind of, you know, there's a directness about the early Beatles. That mm. Kind of later on, they kind of, you know, it's kind of like a got a kind of, well, it's basically, it was done pretty much live, quite a lot of it. Mm-mm. And you can feel it, you know, you can hey, feel that, s- that live spirit. You know? Yes, you can sort of, um, you can, I mean, obviously we have the, the story already laid out for us now, of course, of of what happened and how well they did but it's like you can feel the ambition in the room on those first couple of records that they were you know well you take a song like you know it won't be long mm. 
you know, I mean, that's, you know, especially the middle section, since you left me, mm. I'm so alone, you've got those kind of sliding harmonies, you know. That was outrageous stuff for 1963. I mean, mm. ironically, it's, 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 you know, it's, 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 it's way out there, you know. Yeah, well, I reckon... I've never heard anything quite, do anything quite like that. Yeah. In terms of the sort of contribution. No, I agree. And I, I think that's entirely, the, that's the song that hooked me into that album, of course, because it's um, right there at the start. But it, um, you know, I was maybe 9, 10 or 11 when I first heard that. And I'd grown up with, obviously, lots of Beatles songs. But I think that's when the albums came back into our house. And album by album, you started to listen to them, and yeah, I just I remember thinking when I was listening to it in the in the eighties for the first time that it it still sounded fresh and interesting, you know. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I would get my parents, you know, to I would sort of pester them to buy me records, you know, for my birthday or Christmas or mm. whatever. And in those days, you know, the seventies, the Beatles were kind of disappeared, sort of absent. Because they just broken up, and of course those days the music scene was very much fo- fo- focused on now. Mm. There was no kind of sense of retro. There's no retro, yeah, at yeah, at all. Yeah. So if the Beatles broke up, that was it. They no longer existed as mm. far as the charts and the radio, mm. etc., were concerned. And they were all actively making solo albums too. So they were yeah. So people doing just pe- thought in terms of that's know, right. Rings or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen to the hits that they were creating. Mm. Uh, if if that was taking your interest, yeah, that's the that's interesting. That that's the kind of period where the Beatles they kind um, of dropped out of yes. sight for a, yeah. until for about I don't know seven or eight years, I guess. Yeah, and then of course they started sort of inveigling their way back in. <laughs> yeah, 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 and then the 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 campaigns, the reissue campaigns, the <laughs> rarities, the documentaries haven't really stopped from there. Basically, yeah, because they've had to create a. An industry around it recognised that it's a. But of course, you know, when when Flying Nun started up and and didn't the Dunedin sound, it was a very similar thing in the sense that we were all listening to old records. Really, mm. we weren't listening to. The, well, actually, it's not true, uh, entirely. But we were certainly the the emphasis in terms of the kind of music we were playing was the models we were emulating mm. were very much models from the sixties. Well, the Velvet Underground looms large over that. Dunedin sound and I think like you can even drill down to a song like What Goes On and maybe argue that on some level many of the Dunedin bands were essentially if not trying to do their version of that certainly driven by it in some way yes yeah yeah I'd say that you know Sneaky Finnegan was probably the one Dunedin band that wasn't decided to influence by the (laughs) but we couldn't avoid the fact that their existence and we obviously listened to their record yeah yeah but I certainly, at the same time, I'd never really heard of the Velvet Underground before I moved to New right. Zealand. Yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, I'd heard the name yeah. around in Scotland, but I'd never actually listened to a record. Yeah, yeah. Um, it wasn't until Dunedin that I kind of actually sat down and listened to the Velvet Underground, or for a, a, a huge range of other music. I mean, Martin in our group, yeah. Martin Durrant, was, he was the guy with the record collection, you know, and we would listen, you know, he had hundreds and hundreds of records. And yeah. He would just play us stuff that he thought we'd like and that we thought we might want to be influenced by. Yeah. So that was, you know, perhaps a number. And then, of course, you know, Roy's record shop as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Roy Colbert. Well, let's, Those let's, two things together meant that most of our sources of musical discussion and interest were from, mm. you know, from the past. Mm. Well, let's go back a half step to you arriving in Dunedin. So you go there because your dad gets a job, but you're a, a teenager... You've had your childhood in Scotland. 
Yeah. What's it like for you arriving in the the Scotland of the South, the Edinburgh of, <laughs> of, of the South, or whatever it was? Well, that's what everybody that time, said. Yeah. said. I said, you should be feel at home here. It's just yes. like Scotland. Yeah. But of course, for me at the time, it was like, no, this isn't like Scotland mm. at all. Mm. I guess the first thing I noticed was just the buildings, you know. Yep. Everything was made out of wood, and I thought, God, it's so rickety, you know. <laughs> it's all gonna, and also all the telegraph wires and were above ground. Mm. And I thought, wow, it's just like some kind of cow town, you know. Yeah. I couldn't, it took me a while to get used to that kind of impermanence, you know. Yeah. Here in Scotland, everything's made out of stone, you know. Mm. And so you feel like it's been there for a long time. Mm. In New Zealand, you're immediately conscious that this is, you know, quite a new place, and takes a while to get used to that. I mean, that's kind of ironic because, of course, Dunedin is one of the most traditional, you know, yeah. one, of, one of the oldest towns in, in um, New Zealand in terms of its architecture and stuff. So, you know, actually, it was I was getting a pretty mild dose of, of colonialism mm, compared mm. to most parts of New Zealand. Mm. But maybe that made the transition a bit easier. But, I mean, obviously, the schools and that. I mean, I went to Otago Boys, God help me, and that was kind of like... It was kind of like the 50s, you know? Mm. It was so kind of retro, all the masters wore gowns and all that kind of stuff. And it was, um, <clears throat> and there's all this kind of, you know, straighten that tie, boy, you know, pull up mm. socks. Mm. And I thought, wow, this is, this is like something out of Tom Brown's fucking school days. <laughs> <clears throat> I mean, I only went there for six months, and I kind of figured it, it would be interesting to go to a single sex school. Because in Scotland, all the schools were co ed. Mm. Um, so I was used to kind of that situation. Mm. And so when do you, how does music find you as something you want to do? Like you've already kind of talked a bit about um, being aware of it from the TV theme songs to, you know, parents' record collection of Beatles and from there. But when are you thinking that you want to do something with it as a, well, a writer or a player mm-hmm. or both? Well, I just started... In Scotland, I'd started playing the guitar. Yeah. Um, and but then there wasn't really a lot of people in Dunblane that were I could sort of play music with. It was a pretty small town, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe if I'd sort of moved to a, you know a bigger town, gone to uni or something like that, I would have found more like like-minded people. But as it was in Dunedin, there were you know, I met David at Otago Boys and. He was interested in music like me, and that we sort of formed a friendship on that basis. Um, I mean, initially I just wanted to be like a guitar hero, like Eric Clapton or something like that. Mm. <clears throat> but I kind of, I'd sort of realized that when I sort of met David, you know, almost straight away he started writing songs. You know, as soon as he could play a few chords. And I thought, oh, this is where it's at, obviously. You know, it's not about being a guitar hero, it's about being a songwriter. Mm. And so, once I had that example, just somebody with a kind of musical partner, I sort of gravitated in the direction of what they were doing, which was, you know, songwriting. <clears throat> and I think initially I sort of played the guitar in Scotland because, well, I was kind of quite shy and, you know, I wanted to sort of be attractive to women and stuff like that and mm. I thought well if I play guitar in a band maybe chicks will like me <laughs> yeah that'll be cool but I'd never actually performed on stage in Scotland right I was just a bedroom guitarist yeah <clears throat> I did the typical thing of just I would just listen to records you know the Rolling Stones the Beatles and things like that and just try and figure out what the guitarists were doing you mm. know it was totally listening by learning by ear mm. 
listening to stuff and trying to copy it. Of course, there was no YouTube or anything. Yeah. It was a really good education, you know, because I learned how to pick up stuff just by listening to it, figuring and out what the musical structure was, what the kind of licks were, that kind of thing. Yeah, and do you, do you think you still have moments crop up where you do kind of want to be that Eric Clapton guitar hero? Or do you think you kept them at bay? Well, I mean, as you probably noticed last night. Yeah, you know, well, that's I, why I'm bringing I, it up. I, I, I play quite. A, I do play guitar solo. Yes, yes. Um, I've actually been sort of encouraged recently because I finally got a, a great amplifier after you know, forty <laughs> years of being a guitarist. Last year, I bought a Vox AC15. Right. Now it's, you... just, it's just like the best amplifier I've ever had, and it has this beautiful lead tone. Mm. It's really sort of sings. And I say it just makes you want to play the guitar more. Well, it's interesting because I, I think last night's the very might be the very first time I've ever seen you play. But um, I certainly noticed on the last couple of records, I fe- yeah, I feel like there's a bit more guitar, like a bit more. And and then seeing you play last night, there's as you say, there's definitely solos and there's some quite heavy riffing at times, and certainly. You know, some of the new Beatles arrangements, which we'll get to, are, are very guitar-heavy. Obviously, Michelle is, is a yeah a real statement, a real transformation of a song. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, no, it's, it's noticeable. That the, so I, I just wondered if those, this sort of rocking out guitar instinct was always, always there. Well, I think so, a little bit. I mean... If you listen to Sneaky Fillings records, there are quite a few guitar yeah, solos on them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and they were usually played by me. Yeah. And um, I always liked <clears throat> guitarists that played sort of kind of loud but simple. Mm, and so mm. I like Neil Young and I like John Fogerty mm. a lot. And also because I suppose they were also songwriters. So the mm, guitar mm. parts they played were usually integrated fairly well into the songs. So like you do a solo, but the solo kind of adds something to the song. It's mm. not just a sort of excuse to sort of stretch out um, of course in, in the early Dunedin sound there was a kind of conflicted attitude about guitars mm. because it was kind of like the punk thing meant that either you weren't supposed to play guitar solos or else the solos were supposed to be almost real kind of droning yes, you weren't, and, and you, very minimalist you, know? you, were, you were supposed to idolise and move towards Lou Reed more than Eric Clapton probably there was, yeah there was yeah. a kind of uh, well, anything bluesy was kind yes. of taboo yeah a lot of the Dunedin sound guitarists wouldn't use vibrato just as yeah. because it sounded too bluesy yeah I wasn't prepared to go that far yeah I do, I do bends and play and use a bit of vibrato because you know I mean why not it yeah. seems kind of weird to have to limit yourself in yes. that way yes <clears throat> so I was always into playing solos a bit but at the same time I was, I was, I was also kind of indie in the sense that I didn't have very good gear, and sometimes, you know, even though I did play solo, no one could hear it. So, Mm-mm. and um, so it was a kind of compromise, I suppose, between. And also, I liked the guitar the guitarists that just had very distinctive styles, even when it wasn't soloing, like someone like Roger McGuinn, mm. obviously. You know, mm. his, his guitar is more like architecture, really. Yes. And it is kind of like taking all the lead parts. Yeah. Although yeah. he could play lead, of course. But yeah, yeah. But just that, that, that big surrounding chime that kind of envelops yeah. the song. Yeah. I guess it was always kind of a, a given in sound that in the, the, that style of music that you were going to play the guitar. I mean, there weren't a lot of synthesizer bands, for mm. example. Mm-hmm. So you started to talk about sneaky feelings coming together, and it and it comes together in that 
almost cliched way of two guys meeting each other and finding they, you know, you're almost like, for a moment, you're the only two people in town that have the same interests and you want to kind of get together and explore that and then you realise... Yeah. then yeah, you realize we weren't that. even really aware that there was <laughs> yes. a Dunedin, yeah. other Dunedin. Well, we sort of dimly aware, but... Well, that's what I mean. It's, it's suddenly about so, your insular was... world, like what you guys are up to. Yeah, initially we thought, oh, maybe we'll start a glam rock band, you know, because <laughs> mm. we kind of like glam rock, both of us. And But, you know, it wasn't never going to happen because neither of us were prepared to think about things like <laughs> costumes or yeah. wearing yeah. glitter or stuff like that. Mm. We were, you know, fairly naive, I guess. Mm. But then once you guys start going to watch other bands, then you that also sort of shapes your sense of what you want to do. We would have been watching bands like, you know, well, I saw Toy Love once, mm. and there were local groups like um, um, Heavenly Bodies, who were kind of Dunedin sort of covers band, but they were kind of cool covers band, and they did lots of 60s stuff like The Animals and The Kinks, and mm. so, you know, they kind of shaped. I mean, early on, most of the other Dunedin bands were pretty, I mean, I probably wrote in my book probably remember a bit about the clean seeing them mm. for the first time I mean mm. they literally couldn't couldn't start and stop at the same time yeah they were so kind of basic yeah yeah well Hamish talked to me about um, I'm sure he's told this story plenty of times too but you know he said the very first time he played on stage he had one stick on a snare drum thinking well this worked for Motaka so I'll do this and so it was really that primitive <laughs> The thing about Hamish is he's a kind of a conceptualist, you know. Yes. I think he's he's much more into the idea than he is into the execution, you know. Mm-mm. And so he'll always just go off on a tangent because it's like, oh, this might be interesting, but without really thinking, can I actually do this or not? That's not really a factor. It's yeah. Like, the yeah. idea is the thing, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the, you know, there's a there's a, valid, a validity in that, but it's. Yeah, I mean, John Lennon was like that in some yep. ways. He was yep. he was a great ideas man. But as soon as he'd had the idea, it was like, well, that's over, and on to the next idea. Yeah, someone finished, someone finished that for me, off me, which, yeah. is, which was like the Paul great dy- dynamic between them for so long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. finishing off John's, John's yeah. half-formed half, half ideas. And John um, muddying up some of Paul's things when they were too pretty, too cl- yeah, too yeah. simple and twee and pretty. He'd come in with a biting line or a biting guitar line or yeah, some sort of counterpoint. Yeah, there's a funny story about. Um, have you ever read Jeff Emmerich's book? Mm, mm. Um, he talks about, you know, the Beatles doing Abbey Road, and you know they'd sort of tr- tried to put things back together for the sake of you know yeah, appearances. Yeah. But um, the at the end of um, I want you, she's so heavy. You yes. Know, how they um, Len introduces that sort of white noise wash yeah, yeah. over the whole thing. You know, yeah, it yeah. gets louder and louder, and he, Emmerich sort of recounts being in the studio. And, Paul McCartney sitting in the corner with his sort of head in his hands. Like, Why are you ruining our, you know, you, we were playing so fantastic and you're just fucking white noise all the time. I mean, we wouldn't say it, but you know, it was there in his body language and in his face. He was yeah. Like, Why are you destroying the music? And you can see it, can't you? It's like the it's like the painter that starts painting a house and then suddenly goes, This is never gonna be like the photo. So I'm actually just gonna just slap big, you know. Mm. I'm just going to whitewash that and start again. Oh. And it is like a musical version of that. I know Lennon wanted that song to be the end of Abbey Road. He was, rather than the end of Side One, he wanted that to be 
Right, yeah. So there was he was going for with that, that too. Dead, with that dead cut. That's right. He was going for that as the, that's actually the end. But then Paul wanted the more um, yeah literal the end to be at the end of Abbey Road. Oh, so I guess he wanted to have the last word. That, totally. And totally. on that occasion, he got his way. Yeah, once. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think Leonard had, had checked out a bit too much by that point. Well, that's true. Yeah, one of the other things about the Abbey Road sessions, according to Eric, was that Lennon wasn't there a lot of the yeah, time. Yeah, totally. It was basically just Paul and George and Ringo. And when he was there, he wasn't there. There's a bit well, of Well, when too. he was doing his own songs, he was yeah. on, but yeah. his, apparently his interest in the rest of the stuff was fairly minimal. Yeah. Or at least sort of fleeting. You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so, Sneaky Feelings does what in terms of early nervous first gigs and then... When do you feel? I mean, I was going to say, when do you feel like you're part of the scene? But in some ways, you wrote a book because you felt like I sort of don't want to get to that before we hear a bit about some of the triumphs or attempts at triumphs from the band. But you basically write a book about the band and the Dunedin sound as an argument that you were being yeah sort of yeah, forgotten, getting left out, getting left out. So. How much of that feeling was there when it was happening? I mean, you because you you're not conscious of it because you're just trying to do what you're trying to do. You're just trying to make. Oh, no, I was very conscious. Well, you were. I was right. quite conscious of it. Yeah. When it was at the time, because yeah, you know, I would. I mean, partly because I was a bit because I was nervous and paranoid. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. It was, it was partly coming from me. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's partly down to personality types. You know, if you're a kind of introverted person, you're more much more likely to imagine that people are. Yes. You know, I sort of got, got something against you. Whereas someone like David, who's quite extroverted, you know, he was always sort of, you know, I'm sure he didn't feel it to the same degree. Or if he did, he, he explained it in different ways to mm. himself. Mm. But, you know, we had a different style to the rest of the bands. And also we were trying to do something that was in some ways more complicated without necessarily having the ability to actually do <laughs> Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, when you listen to indie now, you kind of realise that that was actually a hallmark of indie, was that, you know, people with big ambitions and limited means. Mm-mm. And so that was kind of okay. But in terms of sort of, you know, if you want to produce a basic noise and make people dance, then you know, the Velvet Underground Rogi in the Stooges is probably a, a better template than, you know, the Beatles and the Birds, who are, you know, in many ways, studio production, studio-produced mm. bands producing complicated sounds that you can't really expect to do live with sort of yeah, kind yeah. of basic equipment and ability that you've got. Well also all those things, I mean even a bit of backrack and stuff, like at that time we sort of loosely touched on this with the Beatles, but you're referencing those and being inspired by those sorts of things at, at the time when they were probably at their least relevant in Well, yes and no. I mean I mean, it was the 60s, so I guess there was a general, you know, there was a sense of... And I think if you listen to British indie, mm. then actually there was quite a lot of that stuff going on, you know, sort of um, sort of like Tracy Thorne and everything but the girl and mm. Orange Juice. And actually there was, there was quite a lot of, you know, sort of soul and kind of pop influ- and backracky kind of influences mm. in, in, also in, the, in, in British indie. But of course we weren't actually hearing much British indie yeah, yeah. at the time. No, but also, also the late 60s um, Beach Boys stuff is pretty... Big in that eighties and mm. not even into through into the nineties indie stuff, isn't it? Well, um, Martin was always a huge fan of the Beach Boys, yeah. and we and we all became fans of the Beach Boys in the early early eighties. Mm. Um, 
but yeah, listening back, I can hear certainly in British indie kind of bands kind of in a similar direction to what we were trying to do. Mm. But at the same time, I think if I'd heard, if I'd heard those bands at the time, I would have probably dismissed them. Mm. So, you know, mm. I didn't, I guess it's a hallmark of kind of, you know, often when you're an artist in a scene, you often disparage the work of the people that yeah. sound the most like Yes, you. yes, yes. <laughs> it's a bit of... Um, yeah, it's, it's a sort of, you know, it's kind of healthy egotism in a way. Cause yeah. You're trying to differentiate yourself, but at the same time, you know, there are people doing similar things to you, but do you want to acknowledge it or do you want to, you know, how do you want to uh, react to it? But isn't this the, the, the struggle is finding the balance between healthy egotism and unhealthy imposter syndrome? Yeah, absolutely. That's, 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 <clears throat> at the, that's kind of the nub of it all, I think. Yeah. Well, I think I was probably you know, kind of a inclined to be self-deprecating as opposed to arrogant, which is, which is equally debilitating in a different kind of way. Yes, it's, it's really just two doors down the same street. <laughs> <clears throat> but I was kind of writing these, you know, I can just remember going to this party once and we just released Be My Friend. Mm. And I can remember... Robert Scott and all these other Dunedin musos were sort of sitting on a sofa and they started singing Be My Friend you know hmm. like a sort of sing-along thing and I just couldn't I mean I could have seen it in a positive way like when all the hmm. Dunedin musos were singing my song but I was, just wasn't sure if they were taking the piss or not hmm. you know and I just I just didn't know how to take it you know hmm. I just couldn't quite handle the social aspect of being a, of being a musician hmm. I was into the music but I kind of realized in retrospect that you know being the kind of sociability that you have is just as important to be musically successful yes, as the music yes. that you make which is yeah. something that never occurred to me at the time but i can see it in retrospect it would be interesting for you to have been born a a decade or even two later and have the the system that people have now where you can oh, social media and stuff yeah make music in your bedroom and send it out to the wor- world almost anonymously and not have to perform until you want to and be you know <clears throat> you're almost talking about um that that would have been preferable well i suppose so but then you have just to cultivate online sociability yes know, as opposed to face to face it's yeah a, just similar, it's just similar exercise just a different medium <laughs> yeah 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 so uh tell me a bit about your relationship if that's the word with Chris Knox well I mean I think what I would say now is that I've kind of moved on mm-hmm. I mean when I wrote the book I was obviously you know annoyed yes and Chris was a focus of my annoyance because yes. he was the person at Flying Nun who I was most obviously at loggerheads with because unlike most New Zealanders he would say what he thought to your face um, and you know that was kind of confronting Mm. And also the fact that he was much, he was kind of older and more senior than me made it kind of harder for me to kind of answer back, because it's like you know this guy's an authority figure, and so I would tend to sort of you know shrink mm. rather than respond. And so I suppose the book wasn't a crude way, you know, I tend to get my own back. Well, it's interesting because I think you're both. Um, I mean, I know there, there are others. Obviously, Graham Downs is an example and so forth. But you're you're both people that went into or had been involved in in criticism and I guess yours is a more academic 
um, institute approach his is a bit more autodidactic but mm. you know you're both making music but you're both yeah he's vocal a kind of, on some level he was a kind of intellectual yes. he was a writer yeah. Yeah. yeah and he was a multimedia artist yeah and you know unlike as I say he, he had much more explicitly formulated beliefs and ideas than a lot of people do mm. and so of course that made him a powerful figure mm. and also someone that you'd either react for or against mm. um, and so you know um, <clears throat> he became a kind of focus of my sort of, you know, he was a he was an easy target, I guess. Mm. I mean, these days, I think that I sort of generally have sort of made my peace with most of those people. Yeah, yeah. Like for instance, I saw Doug Hood. He came. He actually came to our gig at the um, wine cellar the other night. Yeah. And so that was, you know, it was great that he came to our gig. I was really quite touched. Yeah. <clears throat> but it shows that you know, we have sort of we've kind of overcome the past. Well, it's interesting because you, you were, um, really, you were first cab off the rank in terms of someone putting down on paper the experiences of that era in those bands because your book comes out at the end of the 90s. Yeah. And now, you know, two decades on, there's a there's been a glut of them over the last Everyone's few years. Everyone's writing their, Everyone's writing their memoir now. and Roger, who's, you know, as much flying nun as anyone is, had his book which becomes not just his story but the flying nun story but then you've got shane's book yeah took up a lot of people's took up you know space in people's minds last year and and, and into this year and <clears throat> yeah i'll have to read that you haven't read it yet no yeah it's a good it's a very good book it's a very good piece I of writing that it's, yeah. yeah i'm sure it's well written yeah no very much so i, I just knew he'd have a couple of goes that i said i wasn't rushing to read it because mm. I don't want to have to sort of... Well, I talked to David Kilgore recently and I said, uh, we were, were talking about looking back and he said, you know, it's really only been the last 10 years or so that I can actually look back and go, well, what, whatever we've, we've done, I, you know, I'm proud of it and it's, it's interesting to have longevity. And I, so we, I was asking him about the, the books that are kind of celebrating the scene and what that means. And he said, well, it's funny, I got... I got called out in Roger's book for being an introvert, and I got, um, you know, he said I, I've kind of. He sort of said I've I've fared better than a lot of people. I haven't really been, you know, ripped to bits and that. But Roger called me an introvert, and Shane Carter accused me of being sort of too cool. And I said, but that's just an introvert calling you an introvert, and someone who's too cool calling you too cool. Like it kind of cancels out. It doesn't mm. really matter. And he he just said, yeah, the the. The books are still coming. There's plenty. He's not writing one. At least he's not saying he is. And mm. um, but he said, you know, they're, they're continuing to to topple out. Which is yeah, it's an, it's interesting that you were there first. Um, well, I suppose I've always felt that I could write. You know, mm. I mean, it was I it was a you know, I wrote at school and you know I did a university degree in English and you know mm. I always read a lot of rock criticism. Mm -hmm. I was always kind of intellectually interested in um, music, not just from a, you know, doing it angle, mm. but also from a conceptual angle too. I'd always read, you know, I mean, Martin, Martin had, a, I mean, I used to read the music papers, obviously, mm -hmm. in Britain, and we used to get the NME, and so I would read that and, you know, read all those, you know, Paul Morley and all those kind of people. Mm. Um, plus, you know, Martin had an extensive kind of collection of um, sort of, you know, Chris Gow and Dave Marsh and those mm -mm. Bill Lester Bangs 
So, you know, I was always just as interested in reading about music as I was, I was listening to it almost. Mm. And so, for me, writing a book seemed like quite a natural thing to do. Yeah. Whereas I think for some of the other, you know, uh, Dunedin musicians, you know, music was almost consciously anti-intellectual. Yes, you know, they yeah, yeah. thought yeah. that sort of reading about music would kind of pollute their sense of the mm. purity of the genre or whatever, you know. But our Sneaky Feelings were definitely a, a kind of nerdy intellectual band. Mm. And we liked talking and discussing music and seeing what different people said about it. Mm. And that was part of our thing. Mm. Whereas perhaps that wasn't the case for some of the other Dunedin bands in the same way. They wanted that sort of rock and roll mystique of, you know, just do it, man. Mm. So it's funny, like, when your book came out, I bought, I bought it when it came out. And I, I had this... I, just reread it a few days ago because I had read it, you know, when it was released. And I had this um, embarrassing, funny memory that when your book came out, somehow someone had given me, I was just starting to write reviews, you know, a student paper and stuff, but someone had given me Chris Knox's phone number because he had performed at the university and I think they'd been involved in processing his payment or something and she gave me his number and said here you go you, you can ring Chris Knox and maybe interview him or something and I thought as you do and that and that and that you know this is before seeing the movie almost famous but in that kind of tone anyone mm. that's grown up like it sounds like you have and like I have just absorbing records and rock criticism I just thought yes I'm going to call Chris Knox so I rang him and asked if he wouldn't mind a chat and he said yeah sure you know call me back and Blah blah blah, and I rang him back, and and I was trying to sort of earnestly put across that I was interested in him and his music and the scene, and I said, you know, and I've just read Matthew Bannister's book, and I really, even though I'd read it and read the stuff you'd said, I really had no concept that that was going to mean anything to him beyond the fact that, oh, cool, you're interested in all the stuff we did. And so he just laughed and said, oh, yeah, 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 what did you think of that? And I said, oh, I think it's a really good book. What did you think? And, he's, and he, I, I can't remember exactly what he said. He basically just said, oh, well, you know, I don't really need to tell you what I think of that or whatever. And then I realised, oh, yeah, of course, that was a really <laughs> dumb thing to just put a, to just throw at him like that. That came back to me sort of 20 years later just recently. Mm. Um, but a lot of people, you know, and I shared that I was reading the book, a lot of people mentioned to me how much they loved the book at the time, that they read it, they loved it. Um, what was the response like outside of this Chris Knox rivalry thing or whatever you want to call it? Well, I mean... Um, well, it got generally positive reviews. Yeah. I don't think it sold particularly well. Well, it's a book in New Zealand, <laughs> you know. Well, I guess that's didn't part, have an all-black or a recipe it. on the cover, so, yeah. I mean, I suppose to some of the people in the scene, they probably thought, I was a bit of an outlier and perhaps, mm. you know, if I'd been someone a bit more sort of fated, yes. then perhaps it would have done slightly better. But, you know, I mean, I guess people being what they are, you know, if they have anything positive to say, they'll say it. And if they don't, they tend to keep their mouth shut. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, a few, I think a few people objected to things in it. I mean, I tried to, I mean, one thing I tried to not to do in the book was just give my opinion unbacked mm. by any f kind of sort of mm. anecdote or fact mm. so I tried very hard to sort of basically tell the truth and not, editor not editorialise 
Mm. And so I thought that that way that would keep you on fairly safe ground, that even if, you know, people disagreed with what I said, they couldn't disagree with the fact that it kind of happened. Mm, mm. And so that was my kind of insurance policy. Mm. But obviously, you know, I mean, some people, sort of like sort of Shane, would probably mm. diss the book because it was like, well, it wasn't their experience. And so, of course, they didn't share my experience, and so therefore they tended to dissociate themselves from it, which is, you know, basically fair enough. But I tried in the book to be as generous about music as I possibly could yes. because I mean, even when I didn't get on with these people, I generally like their music. Yeah, you know, and, and I, that really came weird, across to me in a second reading. It's a weird reading. situation yeah. where you actually, you like people's music, but you don't really know how to get on with them as people, mm. and, which is kind of strange. But um, I mean, I always, you know, I admired Shane as a musician. Mm -hmm. So No, that, look, that comes across, and it was interesting to me to, to basically reread the book 20 years down the track because... You know, when I read your book, when it came out, that was my introduction to Sneaky Feelings because there was that compilation that, mm. with the same title that I remember receiving as a earnest young reviewer for the New Zealand musician. And, right. and that was my introduction to the band. And so there's several bands in there that I was reading about this time going, well, I know about them now. I obviously read their names, you know, Bird Nest Roy, stuff like that. Like, I just... I didn't know who these people were, so I loved reading about it, But and it would send you off to go and look at, find the music, which is one of the jobs of a good music book, I think. Absolutely. But it yeah, was, it yeah, but it, it was... It about, you know, about, you know, I've tried to convey as vividly as possible my experiences of seeing music that I loved. Yes, yeah, no, and that, that I really was more alert to be picking that up on this reading, yeah. Although, um, yeah, that was... Although some of them, I mean, I remember that in the example of the clean. Yes. I didn't actually enjoy that gig at all, but I, but it was stuck in my mind because it was such a singular experience. I, I just never seen a band do that before. Get up on stage. It was all. Mm. Like I suppose in retrospect, it was more like an art statement, really. Yeah. You know, but it was so. I mean, at the time it just seemed like a shambles, but it was all very memorable shambles, and it stuck in my mind. Well, meeting David and Hamish Kilgore just the other week and speaking to them both separately. And your book was on my mind because we were talking about what I just mentioned, Shane's book and this whole kind of run of New Zealand music books referencing particularly the Dunedin sound. And they both talked about, without drilling into any specifics about mentions of themselves or anything, but they both brought up that they thought your book was a great book, that it, that it really did a great job of capturing the scene at the time. And... It, and going somewhere towards explaining it, you know, context mm. contextualising it. Yeah, what, well, the only thing I didn't really have was a kind of in, an insider perspective. Yeah. Because, I mean, there was a whole Dunedin network based around the clean and chills and board games, etc. Mm. Which someone like Shane or David would have been sort of part of. Mm. I wasn't really part of that. So, you know, it was an outsider perspective in some ways. Mm. But in, in a more general sense, you know, I guess people still clicked. Because I've also everyone also experiences alienation to some degree mm. as well so they could identify with that aspect so do you and chris connect at all after this because you're living up in auckland when you do the book uh not a great deal yeah. i mean we see each other yeah we say hello and that's pretty much it mm -hmm. um i haven't spoken to him i mean obviously he's had a stroke which mm. is very unfortunate um I looked at his paintings, mm. which are you know still quite amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, no, no real, real contact in yeah. the last twenty years, really. Yeah, yeah. I think I sent him a 
Facebook with friend request. I don't know if he's replied. I don't know if he's even yeah right doing operating Facebook on now. that. Yeah, I don't. I don't think he has much. I think someone might be I'm running sure. a page for him to sell the paintings. I think that's probably it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what happens? Why do you what What happens? The band breaks up. Mm. You do a couple of albums. You do your shows. You you have a mixture of struggle and triumph. Um, well, after yes, Sticky Feelings broke up. I I got a job in the university library. Yeah. And um, that's where I met my Alice, my partner, and we had the idea of forming a band. This is in Auckland. In Auckland, yeah. Auckland University. Yeah. And she was a violinist, and so we had the idea of, you know, playing together. And so that's where the Dribbling Darts of Love came from. Which again didn't. I mean, we made a couple of albums. Mm. We didn't. We didn't really have a drummer and. I suppose we could turn that into a virtue if we really tried, but at the time, it, because in 1990, you know, the whole scene was based around kind of extreme volume, really. Mm, mm. It was all the kind of year of spud and mm. bands like that, and belter space. Yeah, yeah. And we were kind of like, we didn't even need drums. <laughs> so we were obviously kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum. You're sort of forever an outlier. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, it was partly just practical, so we, didn't, we couldn't find a drummer. Yeah, 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 yeah. By necessity. No, but I mean, you're... you're well, also, having a violin in a band, it's really hard to have drums and violins. Yes. No, 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 I know. I've been, I've been a drummer in a band with a violinist, and more than one time I've had violinists glaring at me. Yeah. 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 It just wasn't, you know, the technology wasn't good enough in those yeah. days for a violin player to really, you know... Yes. Be able to be able to heard. Cut, yeah, to cut through. <clears throat> yeah. And then after that, well, we had kids, and... Um, I didn't really, I just did a lot for about at least a decade and a half really, I just mainly did music at home on my own. Yeah, um, that's what I was going to say, you, you, you um, appear to have retired in terms of releasing things, but you don't give music away, you just, you're, you're still No, I said no way it. of releasing yes, it really, yeah. I mean I saw the our, our arrangement of Flying Nun kind of terminated with the end of the Dribbling Darts. Mm. And I didn't have any other way of releasing the music unless I'd done it myself and I was too lazy. Mm. Um, <clears throat> in that time, I kind of, I, I went through a whole sampling phase mm. where um, actually on some of the last Dribbling Darts album, the several tracks, which I, you know, I bought in Sonic Sampler because I'd sort of been inspired by listening to, well, you know, artists like Public Enemy and Beck. Mm. and noticing what they were doing with samplers and thinking, hey, you know, you can just make a song out of recycling bits of other people's songs and messing around with mm -hmm. them. Um, so, for, you know, for several years, I just used to create sort of backing tracks on my, on my sampler and put vocals over them and make songs that way. And that was about as, you know, modern as I got musically. Um, but then, of course, what I realised is if you want to play the songs live, you can't really use the sampler. Mm. And so, eventually, when I st and also I realised that I kind of enjoy playing with people. I don't really want to do stuff on my own all the time. Mm. And just being in a band as a kind of you know, comradely aspect to it, which I really missed. Mm. And so, I ended up playing in bands again. But then the music that I was making on the sequence it wasn't really going to work in that context. So I had to start writing songs again for a, you know, for a conventional kind of band setup. Mm. Mm. And then, and then what happens? You put out a solo album in the mid two thousands. 
Well, I put out Moth, which yeah. is kind of a... It's a solo album, which, my which project. Is, which, is, yeah, which yeah. is kind of me sort of just working on the computer, really. Yeah. And doing mess, doing a lot of messing around later. Yeah, tonight. yeah. Um, it was quite a, you know, fertile period. I wrote, like, almost probably hundreds of songs in that period. Hmm. And I would just record them at night, basically. And, um, you know, ignore my sons telling me from next door, <laughs> shut up, Dad, I want to go to sleep. <laughs> I don't have to sing quite quietly, that's why the song, the album has this kind of intimate kind of feel. Yeah, yeah. That's why I call it Moth. Yeah. Because like moths are kind of more silent than moths that come around in the night. And um, so yeah, I sort of um, did that for a while. But at the same time, I was also playing with The Weather, which was a band I had in Auckland at that time. Yeah, and you also publish again, but you're publishing as a... Yeah, well, an, a, an academic not writing music books. Yeah, well, I mean, this positively George Street came about actually because, partly because I st- I went back to uni, mm. and Roger Horrocks in the department uh, uh, media studies at Auckland said to me, "Have you written anything already?" Mm. And I said, "Well, yeah, I've written a couple of chapters for this book about you know sneaky feelings in Dunedin Sound," and you know he said, "Oh, you know, I'll read a bit." And so, yeah, I gave him a chapter and he read it and he said, this is really good, you should publish it. And um, that was what actually gave me the incentive to think, oh, yeah, okay, mm. maybe this is a thing, I could I could get it published. So he was quite instrumental in sort of getting that book happening. Mm. And then the, th- the thesis I wrote was in many ways a continuation of Positively George Street in a more intellectual mm. kind of vein because mm. it was about alternative guitar rock music in Dunedin mm. or New Zealand in the 80s and um, masculinity, which I kind of chose as a kind of angle, a sort of theory angle to think about um, the music of that time and, and the culture it was coming out of. Mm. And that just reflected my kind of, you know, feelings about New Zealand, I suppose, because of the um, coming to Scotland, coming to New Zealand from Scotland, I immediately became conscious that masculinity had a different kind of sort of a higher, I suppose, status in New Zealand culture than it did in Scottish culture. Mm. Um, there was a kind of certain style of kind of Kiwi kind of blokeness that was kind of prominent in the culture. Whereas in Scotland um, and in Britain in general, gender is kind of less important as a means of social division. Mm-hmm. It's much more about class. You know, are you middle class? Are you mm-hmm. working class? Whereas in New Zealand it's like, are you a man? Are you a woman? And being a kind of, you know, intellectual kind of slightly kind of effeminate I guess kind of guy I immediately became conscious that I was con- I didn't sort of quite match up I wasn't quite tough enough really mm-hmm. and that was part of the reason I have felt a little bit out of touch in this in the New Zealand scene was I kind of felt that I wasn't kind of quite aggressive enough quite masculine enough and you know and so I got kind of bullied a bit and so in many ways that was kind of one of the things I wrote about in my thesis that gave me something to write about um, you know to think about New Zealand society in terms of gender and how that affected the music that got mm. made and how people and how it affected how people talked about music and how they you know the kind of attitudes that they struck based mm, on mm. the kind of music they listened to and all that kind of stuff mm. so that became a PhD and then it became a, a book another book White Boys White Noise but yeah, it's an academic book. So yeah, yeah, yeah. References and lots of 
uh, long words. Yeah, yeah. So, will there be more of that? Are you working on now? You're now you're back in the album cycle in a way, but will there be more book length work from you? Um. Yeah, I'm not quite sure at the minute. I mean, I'm just, I just write articles mainly. Yeah, yeah. But I I don't write about gender quite as much anymore. I sort of. You feel like you've solved that. <coughs> Well, I just, to yourself, I just I know, moved like, on. I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. A bit like, you know, John Lennon and the Beatles. I, mm. I sort of, I sort of, the thing about academia is you're kind of expected to do one thing and stick to it. Mm. You're supposed to t- take one vein and mine it deep. Yes, become but an actually, expert. But, but I'm afraid that I'm, I'm a bit more of an art, but, but a bit more of an artist in the sense that I like to try different things. Yeah, yeah. And so having done the masculinity thing, I kind of thought, well, what can I do now? Mm. And so other things I've written I've kind of departed from that model I've looked at other kinds of ways of thinking about things and also just the circumstances that you're in mm. working at a polytech I started getting interested in the question of you know what's the relationship between ideas about art and actually doing art because polytechs you know are very much about doing things as mm. opposed to mm. creating them so I became more interested in that kind of you know what is creativity angle kind of thing mm. um so, <clears throat> yeah, my ideas have kind of moved on since then. Mm. So how do you come up with and execute this idea, which you've done two albums of now, where you basically are covering Beatles albums track by track, but you are covering them in a way as to make them your own? Now, a lot of people talk about making the song their own with a cover version, but you are... You are deconstructing and rebuilding Beatles songs, basically. You are rebuilding them in uh, flavours that you might have created them in if you had written them. So you do Revolver and you call it Evolver and then just recently you do Rubber Soul, which is called Rubber Solo. How does the idea come for those? How long did you live with that sort of concept before trying it? Well, as usual, <clears throat> the initial idea came out of somebody else mm. in the sense that initially I did Evolver because there was a record club thing at Wintech where music students would try to recreate an album. And they did, they did Revolver and they knew I was a Beatles fan, so they asked me to be involved. Um, <clears throat> so we didn't complete that because you were supposed to do it in a day. And mm. of course, we realized that Beatles songs are far too complicated to <laughs> yeah, record yeah. in one day. Yeah. But then I sort of thought, well, you know, this is an interesting idea. And so I started creating my own demos of how I might do <coughs> uh, songs off Revolver. And um, having done a few of those, I sort of thought, well, I could do the whole album. Why not? Um, it just seemed like a fun thing to do, basically. Mm. It was mm. no kind of real worry attached to it. You know, it's not, it's great in a sense, but it's kind of liberating not to have to think this is my work. Mm. It's mm. sort of somebody else's work. Um, because then it's not the same kind of questions of sort of self-consciousness and reputation attached to it. And so it's quite liberating, really, to do something like that, to, to cover a song, but in a creative way. Um, and when it came out, I didn't really expect... <clears throat> I just put it out because, you know, Power Tool was there for me to do it. Mm. But then I think Russell Brown picked up on it, and he gave it quite a lot of publicity, and then people started, because of Russell Brown, started listening to it and reviewing it, and so it became a little bit of a... Well, certainly the most popular thing I'd done for a mm. fucking long time. Yeah. <clears throat> and, you know, and then suddenly people say, oh, can you do a gig? You know? And I was like, well, so I sort of threw together a band in fairly short order. And we 
did a few gigs. Um, and it just seemed to sort of take off, and I suppose it's typical of the temper of the times, really, that people increasingly pop music is about covering things. Yes. You know, it's about curating, yeah. as opposed to about creating, you know, and it's, you get more attention for doing something that's like a cover or the interpretation that you do for creating your own music, which mm. seems to be a kind of limited appetite for now, and also the internet kind of means that creative original work has kind of less value in some ways because you can just copy it, you know, literally, you know, you can just mm. download other people's stuff. So why would you bother, you know, writing a new song when you can just redo somebody else's? But at the same time, you know, it's something I enjoy. Mm. So, mm. and it doesn't have, as I say, the same kind of artistic angst associated with it as an album of your own stuff. Hmm. So Rubber Soul comes next. It doesn't come next in the lineup of Beatles albums, but that's the one you've done. <coughs> and these are the two kind of classic top of the list of great record Beatles albums, aren't they? These are the that middle period where there's still elements of the early rock and roll thing we were talking about, but they've moved into sophisticated pop songwriting. Yeah. And these, along with, I guess, Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys, are often held up as great examples of, you know, very fine pop records. And, and go back 20 years and 25 years to the mid-90s and the Britpop bands were trying to emulate some version of this on some level or being inspired by it. So it makes sense to cover that one. Yeah, as I said before, when I was talking about the Beatles, mm. I mean, I like all the Beatles, mm. but you're quite right in the sense that the albums are kind of poised on the sort of, you know, on the sort of fulcrum mm. between the early and the late. Mm. And that's what makes them, I think, you know... Interesting. Sort of coverable. <laughs> yes, yes. Because each song is a distinct entity, which is good if you're doing a covers album. Mm-hmm. Um, the later albums, you know, the songs kind of blend into each other to a much greater degree and it becomes, you know, about the sequencing and the production just as it is about the individual compositions. Mm. And so... That makes them, from my point of view, I think, too hard to do a cover version of because how can you cover a kind of a, a sequence or an ad? I mean, yes. as somebody that mainly thinks about music in terms of songs as opposed to kind of sequences. Um, mm. Those albums are too hard to cover. And, of course, you know, they've been done to death anyway recently with all those reissues. Yes, yeah, that's right. Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, if I did another album, Beatles album, it would probably be Hard Day's Night. Yeah, I was going to say it will help, maybe. Um, I would do Hard Day's Night because yeah, I yeah. think the songs are the strongest yes. um, on that one. And but yeah, you're more likely to go back pre-Rubber Soul than go forward. There's no, no there's, as I said, yeah, yeah. the later albums are yeah. sort of too much based around concept and mm-hmm. production and continuity as opposed to individual composition. Or even anti-continuity like the White Album. That's its own thing too. I've heard, I can't remember her name, but recently a woman did a cover of the entire White Album, an American woman, and I thought it was dreadful because she was basically just trying to do dramatic pop versions of these songs that are quite disparate, at least in their intentions. And she kind of vanillaed it, you know. Mm, mm. And so I thought it was really unsuccessful. And I felt the same way when I heard her, again, the name escapes me, but a woman did a full album cover of Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks and performed it live. It was mm. released. It was a live album. And I thought, what a cool idea. And then I listened to it and I thought, no, that was very, very bad. You know, it was like bad Arnie DeFranco. 
Right. And so, yeah, sometimes these things are just, they don't, but you've, you've found a way in with these two records, I think. Well, I guess, yeah, I guess I'm more inclined towards the early to mid Beatles as opposed to mm. the late Beatles. And I think it just must be a kind of aesthetic thing. Mm. I think my aesthetic must be kind of rooted in the early to mid 60s, I guess, mm. when the sort of idea of the song had a kind of certain autonomy to it. Mm. And that was something that I find easy to associate with. And then later on it becomes more rock music. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, I, I don't feel that that's quite my aesthetic. So have you given thought or have people thrown at you the ideas that you should now take this concept and move it on to other artists? Like you should do your version of Pet Sounds or your version of... Nobody's ever really said that to me. Um, Is it something you've thought? Well, I sometimes thought it's kind of obvious doing the Beatles. Why why couldn't I do something else? Mm. But at the same time, I kind of feel like I know the Beatles well enough to do a decent job mm-hmm. whereas with any other artist well I always love individual albums I'm not actually basically an albums guy yeah right I'm more of a singles person mm. and so when people talk about my favourite albums I'm much more inclined to think of in terms of my favourite songs and I like Rubber Soul and you know Revolver because they're all great songs basically mm-hmm. you know collections of, of really great songs mm. and so I guess I have a kind of singles based aesthetic really mm. And so if I was, so that's part of it, I think. And the second is I just don't feel I know any other artists as well as infinitely or as confidently as I know them. Then it becomes a research project that you, which strips the the vibe of it out, doesn't it? If you have to go away and study, I think so. Yeah, the monkeys I mean, I think or whatever, whoever it's going to be, just to pull off new I think versions of it. Uh, yeah, I think the pleasure would be lost. Yeah, it's. I like I just like the fact that I can sort of do it without thinking about it really. Mm-hmm. It just seems to be something that I can sort of intuitively um, sort of tackle. And you are also writing new songs of your own. Still. Oh yeah, I'm still yeah. writing new songs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, at a fairly slow rate now. Yeah. But you know, <clears throat> they're still there. We're sneaky feelings have done another album. Yes. And um, we'll probably put it out next year. Yeah. Um, so that contains new songs by, you know, it's the same model as Progress Junction. We're splitting the record equally between the four of us. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so that's got new stuff on it. Um, plus I'll probably at some point do another album with the changing same or whoever. Yeah, yeah. Um, just because, you know, it's a kind of hard habit to kick, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Now we haven't talked in any of this really about... Um your happiness or a version of happiness in your life is there one do, are you a, are you content are you um i think i'm sort of getting more content mm. i had a series of kind of health problems in the last couple of years um which you know like physical health problems which actually i found in some ways quite liberating because it made me kind of realize that um, well, I suppose the inability to do things made me realise that um, that it was possible to sort of just be content with sort of doing nothing. I guess I was already driven by this kind of anxiety to always do things and create and be busy, etc. And um, 
which actually caused me a lot of angst and distress. Mm. And being physically debilitated made me kind of realize that there's actually a value in doing nothing. And I think that's probably where true happiness lies, you know, is in the ability to just be in the moment and not mm. really not try feeling think, like think that you have to do something. I like the way you described that of having basically an anxiety essentially bugging you, compelling you to create. It's it's there in a lot of us and we don't um, maybe recognize that. We don't, or we, we try, I guess, to recognize it as a good thing when it's sometimes an absolute curse. Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, it'd be, you know, I've kind of realized the value of kind of a sort of a Zen state of just sort of accepting what comes and not trying to think too much about the future or the past. <clears throat> and when you're, you know, which has kind of come out of being mm. sort of slightly invalided, you know, and realizing well, there's nothing I can do, and then thinking actually it's okay, it's okay that I can't that I can't do anything. There's a kind of there is a um, you know uh, whatever a person's feelings around religion or anything like that, there is a kind of guiding principle to that serenity prayer, mm. you know, that, that that idea of of being content. And who you are, and are only focusing on things that you know you can change. Yeah. Being realistic around <clears> the things <throat> that you can't. Yes, and um, yeah, ironically, this happened because you know of physical health issues, <clears throat> which initially seemed like a crippling blow, but then mm. actually I started realizing that psychologically it was kind of an opportunity to kind of <clears throat> rethink my attitude towards you know doing stuff. Mm. And the significance or otherwise of, you know, or of it. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah. Um, so that's probably made me a little bit more content than I've been in the past. Um, although, you know, at the same time, you look at the world today and you think, fucking hell. <clears throat> you know, mm. <clears throat> what is going on out there? And what are things going to be like in ten or twenty years? Yes, and how and how selfish of us to be primarily concerned with our own. Like, there's a duty to, particularly, I think, if you have family members that are involved in your life and that you care for and support, and vice versa. There is a, a duty of care and a responsibility to look after yourself. Um, but how selfish it ultimately is for us to be primarily concerned with that over. Well, yes, no. I mean, yeah, I think it's important to... Because I think people that are reasonably at peace with themselves are less likely to try and screw up the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> totally. <laughs> not trying to but, prove anything. Not, not, not upset about anything. But at the same time, you know, sometimes you have to, you know, be a little bit angry about yeah. things that are happening. Yeah. Um, even if you can't actually, you know, change them yourself. Yeah. But yeah. Um, so it's a weird mixture of having, sort of trying to find inner peace, but also looking at the kind of outer turmoil mm. and wondering, you know, what's in store for New Zealand or the world mm. Um, mm. in the next 20 or 30 years. Mm. So, new Sneaky Feelings album, maybe some new solo songs, maybe another Beatles album. Maybe Hard Day's Night <laughs> at some point. Yeah, I'll just have to see how I feel. And um, yeah, and maybe another book. Yeah, I'm thinking. That's I'll, plenty I'll, of projects. I'll keep you up to date on that. Yeah. I don't feel the same, you know, 
Well, I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, I was going to say I don't feel the same urge to create as I used to, um, which would be kind of consistent with what yeah. I said about. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, it's just a kind of hobby, you know, it's mucking yeah. around. I do a lot of music just sort of recreatively now. Mm-hmm. Like with my wife, I play in a ukulele group and things like that. And that's really just about having fun playing, really. Which is as equally important aspect of music to me mm. as whether or not I'm creating anything new. Mm. It's the participatory aspect of music, the way of, you know, as a way of being with people. You know. Yeah, drawing, so, you, drawing you out of yourself. Socialising without having to, having a conversation necessarily mm. at a literal level. Mm-hmm. Um, and that to me is just as important an aspect of music as the sort of individually creative thing. Mm. It's consistent with what I said, I suppose, about I like being in bands. Because it means yeah. you can play music with other people and enjoy the interaction. Yeah, get something from it, give something to it. And that's something you can always have in the world, you know, and it's something that's a kind of a, a kind of protection blanket against some of the world's kind of iniquities and problems. Well, I far, I, for me, I far prefer having these sorts of conversations than ringing someone up and saying, tell me about your new album. Mm. You know, in 15 minutes, tell me, you know... I'll lob a couple of questions about your past and then you'll tell me about your new album and how it's the best thing you think you've ever done and these are the tour dates. Yeah. That's very artificial. Yeah. And it ran its course a long time ago. See that rusty old piece of iron This must be the place I'm standing in the middle of a road that goes to progress Progress Junction See that broken piece of glass That was the Grand Hotel And those two stumps in the river there That was the Old Town Bridge Progress Junction 